Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to learn more about you, and in particular tonight, learn more about um, who you have revealed yourself to be in uh, the first half of our Bible, the Old Testament. We thank you that we can come to you with confidence, knowing that you are all-powerful, that you are a God who has the capability of doing amazing things beyond uh, what we can even ask or think. So we ask that you would help uh, Jim's mom tonight, that you would give her body strength to heal and to heal quickly, that you would, um, if it would be your will, to reduce her pain and give Jim and um, their family the sustaining grace to take good care of her that they would be able to be flexible with their schedules and flexible in their spirit um, to deal with this difficult time. I also ask that you protect my family from further illness, help Hadley to feel better, help uh, her not to throw up anymore, and that she would um, have the strength to just be her normal, feisty self. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we discussed the doctrine of the Trinity. And we did it, for those of you that did not come, who were skipping out, we uh, did it by means of a quiz. So I gave you a 10-question quiz with a bonus, because I'm nice, and we walked through um, that quiz to try to determine what the an orthodox, historically orthodox position of the Trinity is. And we came down to this, that the Trinity statement would look something like this, that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each being fully divine. So we made sure to talk about that there's one God, that that one God exists in three persons, and each of those persons exists eternally. So God didn't decide to just evidence himself in a unique way in the Old Testament as God the Father, then in the Gospels as God the Son, and then later on as now the Holy Spirit. It was all three of those persons have eternally existed, and they are all fully divine. They're not just spiritual forces or, or powers. They are individually divine. So our conclusion was this, that God is knowable, which we learned lesson one. God has revealed himself so that we can know him, not just know facts about him, but to have a relationship with him. So God is knowable, yet he is incomprehensible. And when I say incomprehensible, that does not mean that he is unknowable, because that would contradict the whole statement. It's that he can't be known fully. So he can be known accurately because he has revealed himself to us, but he cannot be known fully or exhaustively. Now that's a lot in two weeks. Tonight, it's going to be more a lot, but it'll be good. Hopefully it'll be, it'll be helpful. And our goal tonight is to discover that the God of the Old Testament is a promise-making God. That the God of the Old Testament is a promise-making God. And we're going to get to that specific aspect of our goal probably a third of the way, or two-thirds of the way through. But before we dive into the positive aspect of God being a, a promise-making God, I want to address this idea and, and address collectively together. So I'm going to Lots of participation is what I'm looking for here. You've probably heard critics 
say something to the effect that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. Has anyone ever heard something like that? Yes. So, if you can maybe elaborate, how have you heard the God of the Old Testament explained or described by critics of biblical Christianity? What are some of the ways you've you've heard him described? He's a harsh judge. Okay. He's a harsh judge. I'm not trying to trick anyone. I promise. Some people might think he was more interactive, maybe in the Old Testament than okay. in the New. And then he spoke directly to people okay. as opposed to through his word. Okay. Have you ever heard anyone suggest that God is the God of the Old Testament is unbelievable? For instance, uh, I'm going to kind of piecemeal some quotes together by a guy named Jason who was posing some questions on a website called Reasonable Faith to a, a known Christian apologist. That That's a fancy term for just saying a guy who is really skilled at debating the validity of biblical Christianity. So he would defend the faith. Watch out for the wires. <laughs> and this person, Jason, said, The area that bothers, bothers me quite a bit is what to make of the Old Testament of the Bible. What I mean, Professor Craig, is that the Old Testament makes some claims and or point or paints a picture of God that seems so far out there compared to the New Testament. For example, and he gives two, I'm only going to read the first. Number one, extraordinary miracles, such as Jonah living inside of a whale a talking snake in the Exodus story, which doesn't seem to have any historical or archaeological proof. Is it really reasonable to believe that all of the seemingly outrageous supernatural events reported in the Old Testament were literal and took place, despite, for example, there being no evidence of the Exodus? So here's a dude who looks at the supernatural events in the Old Testament, which we have to confess, there were a lot of them, right? Only parallel to that of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Then we get to the epistles, and yeah, there's some supernatural stuff, but it's kind of tap- it kind of tapers off. And then now, I mean, we don't really see any of that. Although it's probably happening, we just don't see it. At least it's sure, surely not happening to the um, in the quantity that it was then. Or what about the idea of unpleasant? As, as Karen said, listen and listen to this. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. Listen, and I'm going to have to define some of these terms for you because I can't even pronounce them, let alone define them. But here's what he says. Now he's way up there in the academic world, so pardon my stupidity, but he says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. 
a misogynist, that's a hater of women, homophobic, fear of homosexuals, racist, infanticidal, that's baby killer, genocidal, exterminator of people groups, filicidal, a killer of one's own family, pestilential, producer of plagues, some sort of megalomaniac, I don't know how to pronounce that, delusions of greatness. He's a sadomasochist, which derives pleasure from inflicting pain on others. And he's capriciously malevolent bully. That's what one atheist claims of the God of the Old Testament. It's hard for me to read that, not only because I can't pronounce half the words, but also because I can't imagine speaking those words of God. And this guy wrote it in a book called The God Delusion. But this is a legitimate and oddly common, even if we haven't necessarily interacted with it, this is a common view that people have that the God of the Old Testament is this angry ogre in the sky versus the God of the New Testament, which even people like Richard Dawkins, even though he thinks that the Bible is a bunch of hogwash, he would still see that there's this gracious, loving character of God that's revealed in the New Testament, even though he thinks it's a big book of fiction. So, maybe if I could ask you this, what evidence from the Old Testament do you think that one of these critics, like Richard Dawkins, or this guy named Jason, might use to support their view of God being this control freak? Okay? Give me others. There's plenty. So, what? Okay. But I mean, in that case, I mean, there's at least a good side, right? Because Israel's saved, but in the Passover, he's slaughtering the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Yeah, Saul go in and kill a whole nation of Israel. Women, children, animals, everything. Probably didn't kill the animals. Are you talking about with the Amalekites? Yeah. Good. The city of Jericho. Yeah. The city of Jericho. March the around the walls, the walls fall down. Vince? The lineage. Like, he begat him, and all the way down to, from David to, to the <coughs> Jesus. Okay. You know. What about the flood? I mean, he just desecrates everything, right? Except for one family. I was thinking in a very personal way, Joel. Okay. Yeah, here, here's this guy. He's a nice guy, so go ahead, Satan. You can have your way with him. You can do anything you want to him except take his life. So Genesis flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Destruction of Jericho, Malachites, Job. Choosing of Israel versus any other. Yeah, I mean, you could say that, well, he's just, he's this pompous, arrogant guy who thinks he can do whatever he wants. He even says, well, was it Psalm 130-something or other, 131 maybe, or I don't know where it is. It's in the 130 somewhere, and he says something to the effect that God is in the heavens. He can do whatever he pleases. <laughs> like, jeepers. I mean, that doesn't sound very cool. I mean, in one sense, right? So, do these people have a point?
I mean, based on just just based on the. I mean, think. Just stop and let let the the thought soak in. God destroyed everybody on the face of the planet with a worldwide global flood, save one family. God desecrated in flames two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And they and it reeked like sulfur. He also gave them lots of chances to. Okay. I mean, it talks specifically regarding those cities that they were given. You know, chance upon chance. Well, what about what about the Canaanites though? I mean, at Jericho, right? Because, I mean, they were just living in the land, right? I mean, they they just happened to be living. Did they? No, maybe they didn't, but. They were living in the promised land. And so God says, well, hey, that's your land. Go for it. Go around the city. Walls come down. They destroy everything. Or they were supposed to. And I can't help but think of the, the um, word picture of the, um, the potter and the clay. Romans 9. Yeah, I just am reminded of that when, in the context of what you're talking about, is God being viewed by some, particularly atheists or agnostics, as being a horrible, wretched God who's jealous and all of those negative things. Yep. I'm reminded of the fact that He's He's our Creator. And yeah, but isn't He? I mean, don't you see? I mean. Is there any sense in which you feel the sting of what they're saying? That, well, okay, so, yeah, God's the creator, but he's this creator that just zaps people when he doesn't like them or doesn't like what they do? Or, oh, they were in my people's land, so... From a worldly standpoint, yeah, you can see what they're saying. I I don't don't agree with it, but I can see why, why they say it. So, how would you guys deal with that? So, if, if I came to you as a critic of biblical creationism, and I'm Richard Dawkins standing in front of you, and I say, hey, this God, he's a control freak. And he's all about just genocide. He's just about wiping all, I mean, a whole people group out of the picture because they wronged him. I'd say they're right. He is, he is a control freak because he's allowed to be. <laughs> And he's wiping out sin, and we're all sinners. So, okay. you're absolutely right. <laughs> he got rid of Sodom and Gomorrah because anybody with like any kind of like moral compass would say, you know, the, the, the atheists think homosexuality is 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 now a choice, and it's so. Yeah, I can see where they're coming from, and a lot of it is true. But depends on how you look at it, I guess. Okay. I mean, if he created everything, doesn't that give him the right to make rules? Yeah. That's what it means. I mean, that, that, that just makes sense. But it does to me. But they're going to argue that he didn't create it. Of course. Well, then you say. Well, but I think that they're even looking at it assuming that God is the creator. Okay, let's just. If an atheist is saying, well, this God of the Old Testament is just a big pile of fiction, right? And so if they were to assume, for the sake of their argument, well, 
So you say you believe in this God who's the creator of everything and who just blows stuff up when he doesn't like it? That's kind of the, the projection that they're coming from or the side they're coming from. So I, I guess, so one way we would deal with it is we would look at this and step back and say, well, God is our creator. He gets to make the rules. But what about the specific instances? Don't you think there's some measure of an appropriateness to let's go back and look at those specific instances to see what in the world's going on? Why did why did he why did he destroy everybody in the flood? Because he looked down and he saw that man was only evil continually in their heart. Man had rejected him, and it grieved him that he even made man because of the evil that they were living in. So yeah. then they're gone. Yeah. Because they were violating his holiness by the sin that they were committing. So he had to he had to punish sin because he can't he can't I don't want to say he can't deal with holiness, but holiness is not his character. So he it, something had to happen. So let's keep in mind what Jim said, because I think that's an important piece to keep in mind. He's the creator. He gets to call the shots. If we were to play the whole, and I hate to even do this because I'm not good on my feet when it comes to this kind of stuff, but I'll go out on a limb here. But if you were to play the other side and say, okay, well, let's say there is no God. Let's take the atheistic worldview. Well, how in the world is any of that wrong anyway? On what basis do they have any sense of wrong or right in the first place? Because all it is is a survival of the fittest, naturalism to its core, whoever's the biggest and best. So it, it, all it is is that, that war, that, that genocide. It's, well, it's the survival of the fittest. The, 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 the fitter, the stronger survived, and the weaker failed. And so those that are stronger get to go on and procreate and produce better, more strong people. So what's the problem from an atheistic, evolutionistic world worldview? Well, there wouldn't be a problem. So it's 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 kind of silly that a guy like Richard Dawkins, who's an atheist, even he's using a moral compass that he's borrowing from the Christian worldview. There's only the only way he can even know that there's a right and wrong is if he is created in the image of God with a bent for what is right and what is wrong. Without God, we can't even know if there's right and wrong. So, how would we address if we dealt with the specific instances that I just cited? I'm not going to spend too much time on these, but for instance, the Genesis flood, because I think we've all mentioned that. My dad mentioned uh, Genesis 6-5 where he says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, so great that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. <coughs> That's pretty bad, right? But consider this. The construction of the ark took a hundred years, approximately. And Second Peter 2 alludes to the fact that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So imagine... For 100 years, people are, are coming around, circling Noah, watching him build this monstrosity. And everyone around him is only doing evil all the time. And he's preaching the righteousness of God. Now think about that. 
So what's going on? God being a, a capricious, changeable bully who just wants to wipe out everybody? No, he's judging sin because he is the holy creator. Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Chapter 18, verse 20, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. And then think about the mercy. Remember, it's in respect to Sodom and Gomorrah that Abraham and God have this lengthy conversation where Abraham keeps going back, well, what if I find 50 good men? Well, what if I find 40? What if I find 30? What if I find 20? What if I find 10? And God says, if I can just find 10, we'll be good. And then what happens? An angel of the Lord comes to Sodom and Gomorrah. And what do the men of Sodom and Gomorrah do? They try to rape the the angel men. And they were from all sorts of different age groups that these men were coming from. And the, the, the idea that is being captured is he couldn't even find ten. So what does God do? He doesn't capriciously bully the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and then incinerate them with a sulfur-like fire. He judges them. Right? justly because of their sin, right? Essentially, the people that um, all the, the list of things that you mentioned that this guy said about God, they're all taken out of context. But based on what Scripture says about each of those types of things, whether it be you know, wants to kill children or, you know, um, to be a dictator or whatever things he said, they're all taken out of context. If you look at Scripture, the way Scripture explains them, there's a valid reason God did everything that he did. It's not, not like, oops, made a mistake there. No. Yeah. Everything is done for purpose. God's purpose. So I'm just going to stick with those two examples. But I think you get the point. So one way we can deal with these critics is we can obviously keep in mind God is the holy creator. He does whatever he pleases. Number two, we look at those specific instances and we look carefully at them and we see, oh, there's more going on than God just being this dictator. But number three, I think we ought to consider what the Old Testament has to say about the loving grace of God. So my question to you is, how has God demonstrated His loving grace in the Old Testament? We'll get to the New Testament next week. Next week, But how has God demonstrated His loving grace in a very clear and present way in the Old Testament? I think He did in Job. Okay. I mean, yes... He took everything away from him, and it could never, ever be replaced. But look how much he gave him back after that. Okay. I think um, right, in, right in Genesis, where um, after Adam and Eve sinned, 
he, um, th- I mean, they should have died, you know, and he um, spared their lives, and he also prevented them from going to the garden, and that was merciful, too. Okay. It was pretty long-suffering with uh, Israel. Yeah. Anybody else? All right, now think about this. Maybe this will inspire you to a little bit more angst here. So remember, I'm Richard Dawkins, the atheist, who's just said what I've said about your God. You should be a little bit more aggressive towards me, obviously gentle and loving and all that stuff, but you ought to be able to have an answer to me, right? And so you've just disproved my thoughts about these specific episodes of God's genocide of people by at least looking at the specific context, you've pledged your allegiance to the Holy Creator God. So show me what's good. Show me what's gracious. Show me what's loving about God in the Old Testament. And so far, you haven't come up with much. Is that it? He rescued them from Egypt. Okay. Stayed with them all the way, even though they kept sinning against him. Okay. How about Adam and Eve? He said he'd kill them if uh, they took from the tree and did to set us down the path of sin, but he spared us. He could have taken them and did mankind right there. Okay. He also uh, now we're getting somewhere. Just the fact that he saves Noah and his family in the flood is what he's talking about as a redemptive act. He could have annihilated the whole world and never had any more human beings. That would have been the end of it. But he didn't. He saved some and that's the beginning of saving some was obviously saving as Jimmy said saving Adam and Eve you know could have scattered the could have done away with people at the Tower of Babel but he just scattered them and dispersed them around the earth um, but I think Noah's the big one he, he didn't need to save Noah everybody could have died that would have been it but he did those who did keep around, um, that's where the, the lineage all the way down and where uh, Jesus came. All right. If you got your paper and you haven't filled it up with notes, flip it over. And I'm going to draw you pictures because I am an awesome artist. <laughs> Not really. I will just let you... This is, this is a little insight on Troy Fisher's way of making sense of things. So I have to write things out. I can't just type stuff into a computer and it all makes sense. I've got it. So we've got the scenario and I want to make sure that we all keep it straight. Where is the love and grace of God in the Old Testament? Well, let me let me set that for you in the context of the big picture of God's whole story, okay? So we'll 
title this one, God's Big Picture. By the, by the way, there's a great book called uh, God's Big Picture, and I'm not stealing it from him, this, but his name is uh, uh, Robert Vaughn. Very good book. So... <laughs> oh, my bad. Bob's big picture. All right, so here we go. We have, we're going to start here in the Garden of Eden. Hopefully, Vince, you can understand my calligraphy here at the end of this. Now, in the Garden of Eden, God creates. Adam and Eve are in what I would call a right relationship with God. And let me put that in terms of um, scriptural terms. God, whoops, God was their God. And Adam and Eve were his people. That should resonate. I will be their God. They will be my people. And right at the get-go, even though that promise is not stated, it didn't need to be because it existed. I will be their God. I was their God. And they were my people. But then something tragic happened. Right? The fall happened. And the relationship went from right relationship to broken relationship. And who did the the breaking of this relationship? It wasn't God, it was man. Now, think about the end before we get to the middle. The end of the story is this. The new heavens and the new earth. This is eternity. God recreates everything. And that right relationship that went to broken relationship gets to restored relationship where God will be our God and we will be his people now Here, let me see if I can shut that set of lights off because some of you are squinting right now. It's because I have blinders. Maybe that'll help. It might not help because I write horrible. It helps a lot. It does. It does. It does. So, what's happened in between the fall? And the restored relationship. Some intervention has to happen. 
And here's what I'd like to draw your attention to, and it's this. Something called the seed promise. And you're probably thinking, what in the heck are you talking about, Troy? The seed promise. And this can be found in Genesis 3, 15. And from that moment on, after the fall, God could have rightly and justly squashed everybody, right? Right. And He would have been just and right to do that because as Jim pointed out a while back, God is our holy creator. He can do whatever He pleases. And I can email you a copy of this, Jim, so you don't have to do whatever you're doing. (laughs) But instead... If we want to find in the pages of the Old Testament the grace of God, we don't have to look any further than the third chapter of the story, right? Where when the relationship went south, on account of man's rebellion, not God's problem, man's problem broke the relationship, God promised divine intervention to rectify the broken relationship. And so we have, in this in-between, from the fall to the new heavens and new earth, this process of God restoring and writing the relationship. So, I'm not going to write that whole paragraph out, but in that time frame, God could have rightly judged us, right then and there. But God chose to restore the relationship through redemption. So I'll write just simply that. Whoa. Alright, I gotta rewrite that one. Restore relationship. Restore relationship. Now, this whole time frame between here, the fall, and here. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? So if I just divided this like that, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, how did I put the goal of this lesson? It's to discover that the God of the Old Testament is a promise-making God. Do you want to look for the love and the grace of God? Look at the fact that He is patient. That He, instead of squashing us like the little rebellious bugs that we are, He, in patience, in grace, in mercy, in love, made promises to us. Promises to restore the wrong that we created. That's love. That's mercy. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ seen in the Old Testament. We don't even we don't even know that Jesus is really Jesus in the Old Testament. So now what I'd like to do is since this class is on the God revealed in the Old Testament, I want to take this illustration right here and kind of blow this up. So we're going to scoot down here. 
and I'm going to attempt to explain a little bit more, kind of like balloon into the Old Testament picture. And so, the Old Testament God, which is the same as the New Testament God, right? He's unchangeable. He's a promise-making God. And I would like to suggest to you that if we understand this idea of the seed promise, the promise of the seed is the promise of Jesus. So Genesis 3.15 promises that the seed is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. In other words, when we know all of Scripture together, we know that that seed is Jesus Christ who is going to come and do away with sin and death and Satan. And he's going to come and fix this junk that we, we entered into the world. So this God makes a promise and the seed promise, I think, is, is a good way of understanding the entirety of Scripture. So right at the get-go, we make God makes the seed promise. And it begins to expand. Begins to progress throughout the Old Testament story. What's the first main covenant? I'm not talking about the Noahic covenant, but what's the first ma- major covenant that is given to man by God. So, we have the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham. I'm going to run out of space. So this seed promise is going to grow, or we're going to learn more information about this promise, right? And in the Abrahamic covenant... We learn that God is going to give this seed to a family, right? Jesus is going to come through Abraham's family, a special family that God chooses, not because Abraham was awesome, but because Abraham was humble and Abraham was lowly and he wasn't that awesome of a guy. And God, out of his sovereign choice, chose Abraham's family. And so we learn a little bit more about the seed, right? We learn a little bit more about Christ through another promise, And then we get to the Mosaic Covenant. And I may, I guess I should put a little explanation under the Abrahamic. So the seed promise, we learn more in the Abrahamic, it's through a family. And through Abraham's family all nations will be blessed bless all nations yeah through Abraham's family bless all nations and then we have the Mosaic Covenant the Mosaic Covenant what is that? it's the deliverance of the nation Mosaic Covenant is the law, right? In the Mosaic Covenant, the law is given, right? The Ten Commandments, 600 plus commandments, right? The tablets. And so how do you think that that expands on this seed promise, the promise of Christ, the promise of a Redeemer? 
Okay? He's going to fulfill the law. Don't you think that the Mosaic Covenant... Exactly. It shows us our need for the seed. It also institutes, although this not not exactly, but it institutes sacrifice in a more formal sense. And this is the idea of the institution of sacrifice is really important because Christ is our sacrifice. And for Christ's sacrifice to be understood, understanding the Old Testament sacrifice is important. So we move from the seed promise to the Abrahamic to the Mosaic, then to the Davidic. And the Davidic covenant is God's promise to David. And how is this expanded? Don't worry, Linda. We're all right. I just didn't get time to read it. Don't worry. They didn't talk about any of this stuff. (laughs) Yep. So we have the seed promise that sounds really vague. Going to come through Abraham's family and through that seed, all nations will be blessed. What does that mean? All nations will hear of the saving grace of God. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will be converted and made people of Abraham's faith. And then in the Mosaic covenant, we're demonstrate or we're shown our need for the seed for His sacrifice. Then in the Davidic covenant, we find out that the seed is going to be a king. Over a forever kingdom. And there should be arrows. I'm trying to like make this as small as possible, but there should be arrows because this is in order of the way the Old Testament reveals God's promises. And then the last major promise or covenant is called the New Covenant. And in the New Covenant, we learn that this seed is going to be a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. That, that once for all sacrifice of sin is going to provide forgiveness. That sin will be held over us no longer. And that the broken relationship will be restored. And again, it's only a prophesying promise, uh, so to speak. Yep. Really, I mean, the, the Abrahamic covenant began taking place as as God unfolded His plan for Israel through Abraham's family. Same thing with the giving of the law with 
Moses and the line coming through David, that didn't that didn't culminate until Christ was born. Yep. And the promise, but you're getting the ahead. Promise of the new covenant. But you're, but you're getting ahead. <laughs> so the, when I say that the Old Testament God is a, a promise making God, I'm not saying, and my dad pointed that out. And it was a caveat that I had in my head that I was going to say and forgot because I didn't write it down in my notes. But when I say that, I'm not trying to create this harsh harsh distinction between the, a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. It's the same God. It's the same promise-making and what we'll see next week, a promise-keeping God. The second God started or made the seed promise, he started keeping that promise. The second he made the Abrahamic promise... He started keeping that promise. But what I'm I'm trying to drive at and set the stage for is a way for you and I to see the whole of Scripture so that we can see, most importantly for our discussion today, that the Old Testament God is a loving, gracious God who is covenanting himself to his people who have rebelled against him. And that God doesn't just make these empty promises to make us feel warm and fuzzy, but that God, next week we're going to find out, fulfills everything in this culminating work of sending his son to to this earth. And Jesus, the New Testament is adamant, is the yes of all these promises. He is the cumulative sum total fulfillment of all these things. He is the thing that all of this in the Old Testament is pointing towards. That doesn't mean that every twinge of a verse, every syllable somehow has a direct correlation to Jesus, but the overarching theme of the Old Testament is pointing as a big arrow, as a light, lighted arrow to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that's why I think this idea of a seed promise, the promise of a coming Redeemer, the promise of Christ, and you see all of Scripture with that in view, it starts to make a lot of sense. It provides a framework for us to understand Scripture through. Let me provide you, if you, if, you're, if everything, your mind's been blown, you can tune out for a second. But I'd like to give you um, something that helps me this is just an aside. It's extra money or, or free for you know the twenty dollars you paid to take the class or whatever the cost for the book. But what I I try to think through when I'm looking at Old Testament passages because sometimes I find myself getting wrapped up in the story and thinking, well, what's the point? What's the? It could just sometimes easily be just this moral story, and although that exists. Here's some of the things that I think when you look at the seed promise and trace it throughout Scripture, this is what can happen. That the whole of the Old Testament, knowing that the whole of the Old Testament points to Christ, here's how it does it. By preserving the seed promise. So when I'm looking at a given text, I can ask, is this passage helping to preserve the line to Christ? Think with me for a second. You get to Noah. And God sees everything as wicked. Why could God not have wiped everybody off the face of the earth? 
then he would have to create more people to continue the seed promise. Well, he would have broken. And he would have broken his promise, right? There had to be one, and he found that family. And then a little bit later, you get to Abraham, and he makes this amazing promise of how that seed, that Genesis 3.15 seed, is going to come to fruition. And his one son, given to Abraham and Sarah when they're in their hundreds and nineties, in their very old age. And Abraham is standing over his son Isaac with a dagger in his hand, walking there, and Isaac saying, Dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? God will provide the sacrifice. And Abraham, believing that, stands with a dagger, and about ready to launch it into Isaac's chest, God stops him. And right then, we're faced again with this idea, but wait, what about the seed? And we could just keep going. And what about Joseph? And we read this elaborate story about Joseph. And we get wrapped up in all the details, and we think, man, this is a cool story. Joseph is an awesome dude. I can't believe all the trials he's gone through. I mean, he's in a pit, and he gets... He ascends to be like the head, head of the household, and then he gets wrongly accused, he gets thrown in prison. And in the smack dab middle of that, we hear this story about Judah sleeping with his, was it daughter-in-law? Or something weird like that? Tamar. Like, what in the world? Why, in the world? Why is that there? And then we get to the end of the story, and Joseph sees his brothers and what God meant for evil or what you meant for evil God meant for good and God sent me here to save a remnant Joseph isn't in the line of Christ did you know that? you would think with that massive narrative about Joseph that he would be this massively important thing but Joseph's wisdom to get his family into Egypt where there was food Help preserve Judah's line, and God somehow, in the His humorous wisdom, chose Perez, who is the the son of Judah and Tamar's incestual weird relationship, to be part of the line to Christ. And so again, right when you think we're on the cusp of the promise is going to end, God preserves His promise. So a way we can look at the stories of Scripture in the Old Testament is that God is keeping His promises. He's preserving the line to Christ. So that would be one of the ways. And what I mean when I say line to Christ, for those of you that don't understand, Vince mentioned something about genealogies earlier. We think, man, those genealogies are a pain in the butt to read, and they are. But trace through those genealogies, we see the line from Adam to Abraham to David all the way to Christ. Preserving the line to Christ. So that would be one question we would ask, and I'm sorry about my penmanship. My kindergarten teacher would be really disappointed in me. Another way that the Old Testament as a whole points to Jesus, and another question we could be asking of a given text in the Old Testament is, is this text predicting or prophesying the person and work or coming of Christ? Predicting slash prophesying. 
And here we could go to Isaiah the prophet, who gives us more information as to what this uh, Messiah is going to be like. And we learn that he's going to be a servant. He's going to be a suffering servant. And you would think, hey, I mean, he's going to be a king, right? And the Jewish expectation might be that he's going to come and he's going to be this triumphal king. And he ends up dying. So is this text in the Old Testament preserving the line of Christ? Is it predicting something about the person and work of Christ? Is it providing a pattern that Christ will fulfill? And there are numerous, numerous examples that we could cite. But for instance, one that we already alluded to. The whole idea of Abraham and Isaac, right? That whole story and scenario gives us a glimpse and a picture into a pattern that Jesus will fulfill. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system gives us a pattern after which Jesus will fulfill. He is the sacrifice, the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. Another one is that, does the text present a problem? I guess I should stay consistent. Does the text present a problem that Jesus is going to make right? Like, for instance, the very fact that we are faced nearly every page of Scripture with the problem of our sin, the problem of the fallen human condition, and Jesus is going to right that. The fact that every human being is going to die Will every human being die? Yep. But we will be raised to new life. Jesus is going to remedy that problem. Then lastly, and for lack of a better word, I say just to keep it with the P's, progressing or what I mean is expanding the seed promise. So here, you got a hermeneutics lesson tonight on the Old Testament. But it all relates, right? Because the Old Testament presents to us a loving God who is a promise-making God. In the face of our sinful rebellion, God in His mercy, who could have justly squashed us, made us a promise to send His Son, the Seed, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, the, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, He comes with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. 
And that is our God presented in the Old Testament. Yeah, he's a God that judges sin. But he is a God who judges sin and simultaneously is preserving the line to the Son who remedies our sin. That is amazing grace. And we see it from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament. And we will see next week that all of that is bound up in the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of this stuff. And so we have a paradigm, a plan, for looking at the Old Testament with that idea of God being a promise-making God in the coming of Jesus Christ as a way to understand the Scripture. So what does that, all of this, have to do with you? Because this is like a massive amount of information. God has been merciful. And God has made you a promise. And God has made good on his promise. Hasn't he? Because from where we stand, God has sent Jesus. And if God has sent Jesus to make good on his promises, he will send Jesus again to make good fully and finally on all of his promises when we will be with him forever. And we will be with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. So we can trust him. And we can praise him. And if we are not his children, we ought to repent and believe this very moment because this God is not just an angry, whimsical, capricious God who changes his mind every second. He is a God who makes promises to his rebellious creation to save them from their sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are an amazing God, that we can stand here just completely baffled by the fact that in the face of our sin and our rebellion, you moved toward us in grace and mercy and made us a promise of redemption. God, with this... um, draw us to praise? Would it draw us to repentance and faith? Would it draw us to study your word, to see um, Christ in all of scripture? Would it help us to understand who you are, that you are a loving, covenant-keeping God? May we trust you with who we are and everything we have. In your name we pray. Amen.